Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. We wanted to determine whether or not we could decrease bacterial burden, not only of the biofilm, which was very, very resistant to treatment, and also the free-floating bacteria, which actually lead to biofilm. And we found that there was a dramatic reduction in biofilm bacteria and also planktonic bacteria. Now, this is really important because the current therapy in the marketplace does not have the ability to have any effect on bacteria at all, at least in the studies. We have the ability to decrease what we call bacterial bioburden or large amounts of bacteria. But we also have the ability to treat this very resistant and often very virulent biofilm bacteria. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan. And this is Bench Talk Bios, a podcast series by LifeSite Partners, where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. My guest today is Dr. Robert Schneider. He is the CMO of MediWound. Doctor, welcome to Bench Talk Bios. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right, let's start off with the general before we get into the specifics here. Give me the elevator pitch for MediWound. Where are you headquartered? How long have you been in business and what sort of business are we talking about? So MediWound is a very interesting company. It's been around for about 22 years. It's an Israeli company, a biopharmaceutical company that develops and manufactures and commercializes very novel, cost-effective biotherapeutic solutions, not only to tissue repair, but also regeneration. Very cool. All right, now we're going to get a lot more on the technology of MediWound in just a few minutes, but in the spirit of Benchtop Biles, I want to know a bit more about the person who's going to be assuming the CMO role as of January. That would be you. Let's just start right at the beginning, sir. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. Oh, uh, you didn't? Seriously? I'm in Park Slope, Brooklyn. I've been in Brooklyn for 40 years now. Okay, tell me about Brighton Beach. Your earliest memories would be the boardwalk, the... Coney Island. Tell me something about where you grew up. So, yes, the beach and the boardwalk were certainly very, very much a part of my life. I lived between the beach and the subway. So I would hear (laughs) the subway every night. And the only time I knew the subway was not theirs, obviously, is when I couldn't sleep because I realized that I could only sleep when I heard that buzzing sound of the trains moving back and forth. I have very fond memories of playing stickball and punch ball and basketball in Second Street Park and going to Lincoln High School. It was really a very interesting and very gratifying childhood. I'm very, very lucky to have grown up there. Tell me just a bit more about that kid. Was this a kid always wanted to be a doctor or that just came about later? I've always felt I wanted to be in the medical field in some way. You know, if somebody had a nosebleed, one of my friends had a nosebleed, I was always the first one to kind of run over there and put his nose back and and try to stop (laughs) bleeding. I've always had an interest in science. And when I got into college, that obviously became much more formidable for me. I started to become very interested in science and in medicine. 
and realized that I had a calling, that I really wanted to be a physician and that I wanted to really try to help not only the population that was surrounding me, but also some of the disparate populations as well. I had, I had a very strong desire to have a wide range of individual patients that I would see. All right. Tell me just a bit more about your training. I know when you went to LIU, your folks out there, that's Long Island University, just down the street from where I am. That's where you got your BS in biology. You then went on to get your degree in podiatry. When and where was that? So I graduated uh, Long Island University, the Brooklyn campus, of course, in, in 1971. I graduated the New York College of Podiatric Medicine in 1975. I did some training in residency at the Jewish Memorial Hospital. I went on to do some additional training in Kansas City, Missouri, and then my wife and I who had been recently married, by the way, had driven back from Kansas City, Missouri, and we landed up in Florida. I had a license there. I had no intention initially of practicing here, but I was offered a very nice position in South Florida, which I took and uh, was very happy that I did. And from there, I opened up my own office with a partner, and we basically had a general podiatric practice, but I felt that it was much more gratifying for me to see patients that had non-healing wounds, chronic wounds, patients that I had operated on as an example that would have a typical podiatric problem like a bunion, very often they weren't very happy because it appeared to be more cosmetic sometimes than anything else. And I remember it distinctly being in one room where there was a young lady who was complaining about a, a surgery that I had done because her toe wasn't entirely straight. And then I went into the other room and there was a woman who had a transmetatarsal amputation, which I had performed. In other words, I'd removed half of her foot. Yeah. And she kissed my hands and started to cry and said, you saved my life. And yeah. at that point, it was almost an epiphany where I said, this is really what I want to do. And from then on in, I actually sold that practice, which was in Boynton Beach. I retrained and I went on to be a wound care specialist after that. You got further training? Where was that? Well, I got a master's degree in wound healing and tissue science from uh, Cardiff University, uh, Wales uh, College of Medicine. Wow. I also, uh, <laughs> you know, it was kind of an, an interesting experience. I had to fly back and forth a few times. A, a lot of it was online. It was kind of embryonic online, but then nonetheless, it was a great experience for me. And then I ultimately went on to get a global clinical scholars research training program at Harvard Medical School. Okay. Well, a lot of training there, but there is some corporate experience, and I do want to talk about that now. You joined a company called Assistogenics. You were the medical director there from 2004 to 2009. Did you leave the practice? I mean, how did this position come about? So that was a, a very part-time position, but was interesting because one of the things that I wanted to make certain would happen is that I would be able to continue my clinical and research practice. So basically, I was a consultant for many years, probably more than 10 years for Johnson & Johnson and their Ethicon and Wound Care Division, and uh, they sold their assets to Systogenics. And I had been with Johnson & Johnson and had a very good reputation with them and was ultimately recommended for the medical director position. And I was fortunate to get it. Not only uh, was I working in the United States and also continuing to work in my practice, but I had the opportunity to really go all over the world. There were many seminars from the European Wound Management Association. We went to the World Union of Wound Healing Societies in Japan. I spent time in Israel, 
spend time in the Middle East, uh, training uh, physicians in wound management and limb preservation. So it was a very exciting time in my life, and it was something that I, I'm, I'm very grateful for. And it also gave me a lot of insights into really understanding the business behind uh, wound management. All right. So you were there, for, as I said, for a number of years. You left that for professorship. You also were the director of clinical research at the Barry University School of Podiatric Medicine. This is in Southern Florida, your hometown there, or your adopted hometown. You rose to the position of dean in 2021. This is a title you still hold. So that's busy enough. And I can do a little bit of math. I'm guessing you could retire if you wanted to. You're in Southern Florida. Why do you want to take on the CMO role? And you're not even started yet. You're going to start in January. The reason is that I have a real desire to move the profession forward. You know, wound management and limb preservation has been my life for <clears throat> for more than 30 years. And I realize that there are unmet medical needs. And I want to really be part of the uh, innovation and the new technologies that are currently available. Technologies are moving at lightning speed. And I don't want to miss that. So I felt that it was important for me to just kind of stay in the game, if you will. I did some initial work with MediWound uh, when we were designing and involved with uh, phase two trial on venous leg ulcers. And from there, the wonderful current chief medical officer, who actually was the founder of the company, retired and they needed a new CMO. I was asked to do this and was approved by the board. And it was really my great pleasure and honor to say yes. All right. Well, now let's talk about the assets that you're going to be working with. This company actually has three assets in development. One has actually been, actually two in development. One has been approved. The approved drug is called Nexabrid. Correct. Uh, it's approved in the EU and several other international markets. It will be approved here in the U.S. fairly soon, I'm guessing in the next six months. I want to talk just for a minute about the drug itself because it's derived from something a little bit unusual. It comes from the pineapple plant, of all things. What is the drug? What's the mechanism? So the pineapple plant has a very interesting compound called bromelain. And bromelain has been shown to have many different effects. And one of the most significant ones when applied topically is that it is a very, very formidable debriding agent. In other words, it will remove dead tissue very quickly from a wound surface. Hmm. And that could be very significant, uh, not only in burn patients, but also in patients with diabetes and patients with venous leg ulcers, because this thick necrotic tissue, this dead tissue is a harborage of uh, bacteria and also uh, decreases the body's ability to close the wound because the cells that surround the wound have to kind of cross the wound in order to heal it. And with this boulder in the way, this necrotic tissue, this dead tissue in the way, it becomes very difficult for these wounds to heal. So it's very important to get rid of this necrotic dead eschar or tissue and the standard of care for burns has historically been to excise these wounds surgically, uh, which certainly mm -hmm. puts the patient at some risk and certainly can be painful, etc. With uh, Nexabrid, Nexabrid gives the patient the ability to have a topical agent applied. And a topical agent is very effective in debriding this necrotic or dead tissue. So it makes it a lot easier to move to the next step, which could be split thickness skin grafting or some other type of cellular tissue-based therapy to help heal the burn wound. Got it. 
I want to point out to the listeners, as I mentioned, this is on the verge of being approved. And there is also a marketing partner here, a company called Vericell. So stay tuned for that launch in hopefully the first half of 2023. Now, that's really in your wheelhouse. This product is called XCharX. 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 Thank you. This is described as a next generation wound care. And this asset, is this also uh, derived from bromelain? Correct. It's a different dosage. It's less of the dosage that you would see in patients with burns, but is very, very effective in debriding these wounds over a very short window of time, which is extraordinarily important because the longer it takes to debride these wounds, the more likely a patient can succumb to infection, sepsis, limb loss, or even death. So it's very, very important to debride these wounds effectively so we can move to the next level, either a skin graft or some other type of cellular tissue-based therapy to allow these wounds to heal in an expeditious manner. Uh, Now, this compound is indicated for hard-to-heal wounds like diabetic foot ulcers. This is a serious problem. We used to cover this space. And venous leg ulcers. I'm guessing just as in the first case, the way to clean up these wounds is cutting. Is there any other option here or is that it? So the mainstay of debridement, if you will, or the the cleaning away of dead tissue from a wound is historically sharp debridement. There are other methodologies as well. Autolytic debridement, where the body itself creates its own enzymes to debride. We have enzymatic debridement. And of course, we have larva or biologic or biosurgical debridement. But the mainstay really is surgical debridement. The problem is that there are many patients who are not candidates for sharp debridement. Patients who are too sick, patients with poor circulation, patients who just don't want clinicians to go ahead and take a sharp instrument to their body out of fear that there may be a problem. So these other methodologies, particularly enzymatic debridement, uh, it's very often becomes the mainstay. And unfortunately, at this point, although we do have an enzymatic debriding agent in the space, collagenase, it is effective, but it's effective in studies along with sharp debridement. And in many cases, the current therapy has to be used for an extended period of time, sometimes weeks, sometimes months. So certainly there is an unmet medical need for the utilization of an enzymatic agent that will debride these wounds much more quickly and efficiently so that we can now move to the next stage, which would be either a split thickness skin graft or some other cell or tissue-based therapy that would allow us to expedite and efficiently heal these very chronic wounds. All right. Now, this asset is in the clinic. I believe you have participated at that level as one of the PIs. There is actually three studies that have been completed. I want to talk about two of them. They go by the name of Cronex and another one called Pharmex. Doctor, could you tell me about these studies? So Cronex is our phase two randomized control trial. It was based on venous leg ulcers. Venous leg ulcers are historically very hard to debride because Patients usually find that they are very painful. So basically, we studied 120 patients. We basically used this therapy, the Escorex, and we compared it to non-surgical standard of care uh, to see whether or not there were dramatic differences in the amount of time that it would take to actually debride the wound. And the results were very formidable, 
The primary endpoint, of course, was there was significantly higher incidence of complete debridement achieved with up to eight applications within 14 days. And 29 of 46 patients treated with Escorex, or approximately 63%, versus 13 of 43 patients treated with a gel vehicle, 30%, had appropriate debridement. Another endpoint was that only four patients, about 13%, treated with the non-surgical standard of care, achieved mm-hmm. complete debridement during 14 days of treatment. And there was a very significant p-value there. The average number of visits with the treatment applications to complete debridement, about 3.6 visits with Escorex versus almost 13 visits with the non-surgical standard of care. So this was very, very significant results. I have a question related to adoption. Would this be an outpatient thing? or I mean, do I have to go to the doctor every time this is applied or could I do it at home? So it's a very good question. So during the study, because we wanted to determine exactly when the debridement, complete debridement would occur, we had the patient come to the clinic for eight consecutive days. We gave them a holiday on the weekend, but we saw them eight consecutive times. In reality, Hopefully, once the product is approved, we will be able to have the patients treating themselves or having a a home health nurse come in and apply the product daily at home, and the clinician would then see them once a week. But for purposes of the study, we actually would bring them into the clinic every day and apply the product. Have you seen any safety signals? I'm sorry? Any safety signals? Any adverse events? No, none at all. In in fact, uh, this was looked at extremely carefully, and there was absolutely no reason for us to believe that there were any safety concerns. But you do have this other study called PharmX. What would be the focus of that study? So PharmX basically not only looked at debridement, but also looked at whether or not this product had an effect on various types of bacteria. The two that we looked at, uh, the first one was what we call planktonic bacteria or surface bacteria. We, we see this building up in large quantities in chronic wounds. And when you reach a certain critical mass, uh, you have decrease in healing. But more importantly, we were looking at something called a biofilm. Biofilm is very similar to the plaque that you have in your teeth, but we see them in about 90% of all wounds and 100% of all diabetic foot wounds. Obviously, not every biofilm is bad, but when patients are not healing with all the things we know we should be doing that that are not working, then biofilm is usually the culprit. So we wanted to determine whether or not Escorex had an effect on biofilm and had an effect on planktonic or the surface bacteria. So we were looking not only at biofilm, but we were looking at planktonic bacteria and We found that uh, utilizing biopsies, full thickness biopsies, looking at the bacteria itself with a very sophisticated fluorescence device called moleculite, we wanted to determine whether or not we could decrease bacterial burden, not only of the biofilm, which was very, very resistant to treatment, and also the free-floating bacteria, which actually lead to biofilm. And we found that there was a dramatic reduction in biofilm bacteria and also planktonic bacteria. Now, this is really important because the current therapy in the marketplace does not have the ability to have any effect on bacteria at all, at least in the studies that are currently out there. So this actually represents a triple threat. We have debridement. We have the ability to decrease what we call bacterial bioburden or large amounts of bacteria. But we also have the ability to 
treat this very resistant and often very virulent biofilm bacteria. Could you comment just for a moment on the mechanism of that? Is it because you're removing the substrate for the bacteria? We don't really know completely the mechanism of action. What we do know is that it actually disrupts what we refer to as the glycocalyx. It is this polysaccharide matrix that's very, very thick. And right in the middle, it's like a tube. Kind of if you looked at a a capsule, a drug capsule, it's kind of what it looks like. And right in the middle of it are all these virulent heterogeneous bacteria. They're all kind of protecting one another. And when they reach a critical mass, they basically start to genetically speak to one another, something we call quorum sensing. Also, uh, biofilm bacteria has a very low metabolic rate. So antibiotics that you would treat it with, let's say oral antibiotics that you would treat it with, don't work because Mm -hmm. it doesn't penetrate that glycocalyx and it doesn't have any effect on bacteria that doesn't have a very robust metabolism. So this is really a significant breakthrough. A question asked, I realize you're a physician, this may not be fair, but as far as adoption goes, well, who's your audience here? Who do you think should be using this product? Who do you want to sell this product to? Well, certainly it could be used by any clinician who is working in the wound management space can be used in a clinic setting. It could be used by home health care nurses. Nurses in most states are not able to debride wounds at bedside, so they have, they're relegated to using a gauze and saline to kind of rub the wound to try to clean it out. That does nothing to biofilm at all. And even if it did, the biofilm regrows very, very quickly. And within 72 hours is a mature biofilm. So it has huge applications, uh, not only in the clinic, but also in the home as well. And I see tremendous benefit in this. I just want to touch on one other product. It's in the pipeline. We're just going to simply mention it and the unmet need here. The drug doesn't have a spiffy name, but it is called MWPC005. This is intended to treat non-melanoma skin cancers, meaning basal cell carcinomas. The current standard of care here is a chemotherapy called 5-FU. So just briefly, sir, what's the unmet need here? Why not just use the 5-FU? I think there's always an opportunity to improve a treatment of all kinds of skin cancers. Uh, Basal cell cancers are very, very common. Although they don't metastasize, they can spread locally and they can create significant uh, disability and problems. So I think this new therapy can help to either augment or replace the current 5-FU. And also, in many cases, these patients have to undergo some type of surgical procedure, either a Mohs surgery, where you have a Mohs surgeon who takes Mm -hmm. these little sections and looks at them and and sees whether or not there are clear margins, or there's an excision of the cancer. Again, these are not cancers that metastasize as basal cells, but they can be very destructive locally. I've actually seen patients who've done very poorly with basal cell cancers. You also have individuals who get these cancers much later in life. So very often, particularly if they're in the lower leg, as an example, they're very, very difficult to heal when they're excised, even with most surgery. So this could really be a significant breakthrough. That's, I mean, it's funny you should mention that. My mother had such a procedure. It took months for that to heal. So this, could be, this could be avoided with this therapy. Tremendous. All right. 
Now, I'm not going to ask you any more questions about the corporate structure or cash or IP because that's not fair because you haven't started your job yet. So there's a lot of stuff that you still have to learn and that comes as the year turns new. But I will ask one thing. You have been in the space a long time and you do have some insight about this, which is investors are not really big on the boon space. I mean, you've seen products come and go. Why is just it's hard to get people excited about this? Why? So to your point, I've done approximately 65 randomized controlled trials, uh, predominantly on patients with diabetic foot ulcers, venous leg ulcers, and some of the more unusual uh, uh, ulcerative groups. And unfortunately, many of these innovative therapies, even when they get through the initial trials, don't do well in the long run. So it becomes very, very difficult for investors to justify looking at wound care products. Also, there are risks relative to reimbursement as well. In this particular case, though, there is a huge unmet need. Remember, we have only one other product in the space that does this. So if you have an individual and when they do it, they do it very slowly. So if you have an individual who, as an example, cannot get to a doctor's office on a regular basis um, or doesn't need or, or can't have sharp debridement, this becomes a very critical piece of their care because particularly in diabetic patients, as an example, these people can very, very quickly go bad and lose a limb. So this represents a huge unmet medical need. The studies were done meticulously and they were analyzed meticulously and the results were formidable very impressive. I think at the end of the day, I think that this will not only be a very important medical innovation, but will be very profitable as well. All right. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap. My guest today has been Dr. Robert Snyder. He is the incoming CMO of MediOne. Doctor, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was my great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of Lifesize Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanadad at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.